here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs healthcare. And that is, that's most people, Stephanie. You may not know this, but that is me. Most people. So it's Monday, and we're going to try and make it through the end of our Monday here. <laughs> we're 30, almost there. Yep. Last podcast, we discussed expanding and improving Medicare. You know, this was way back two weeks ago. And it was really an uphill fight, of course, with the Biden administration focused only on expanded subsidies for the ACA. So the things that we are wanting are so far from sort of what Biden's pushing as his starting point, right? But thanks to a lot of grassroots pressure, it's basically a whole new world now since even just earlier in July, the ground has really shifted and there are a couple of major updates on the budget moving through Congress with significant implications for the Medicare for All movement. So that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Another thing that you know we started thinking about since the last podcast was when was the last major expansion of Medicare? And how would these reforms fit into the history of expanding Medicare since it was passed in you know 1965? So we decided to do little research, you know, learn a lot of interesting things. And so we're going to kind of quickly take a tour of Medicare through years and place where this moment is in all of that historical context. So Ben, do you want to start us off with an update on the state? Sure. Uh, This is going to be the opposite of the history lesson. This is like the last week lesson. So there's been a couple of major developments recently. The first major development is in the House side. The House Appropriations Committee for the first time in 45 years, passed a budget without the Hyde Amendment included. This is the component that bans federal funds from being used for abortion services. People think it's a law, but it's actually not a law. It just gets added to the budget every single year by Congress. So for the first time, there were so few sort of anti-abortion Democrats in the House that are left, but actually made it out of committee without the Hyde Amendment included. For the first time, this is a really major thing and also has major implications for Medicare for All. This is kind of going to be a theme for a lot of the things we're talking about here with Medicare expansion. Right now, as it stands, Medicare for all, you know, we're already going to have to fight, you know, the health insurance industry and probably the for-profit hospital industry. But we're also going to have to fight the abortion fight. We're probably going to have to fight immigrant inclusion fight. If we want to do things like adding dental and vision to Medicare and for everyone, we're going to possibly have to take on the for-profit dental associations. So anything, any of these that we can win in advance of passing a Medicare for all bill means that it's easier for us to win in the end, Medicare, and we have fewer sort of enemies and major tasks to take on. So to me, the Hyde Amendment, this is a major, major accomplishment, even though probably the Senate is not going to go as far as the House just did. It, it does mean we're getting closer and closer, which is really exciting. The second major development is on the Senate side. Senate Democrats and Biden have agreed to a $3.5 trillion number for this budget. Uh, not as much as, you know, the Bernie Sanders and AOCs wanted or probably any of us wanted. 
But Chuck Schumer has publicly announced and all of Democratic leadership has announced that they're pushing to include dental vision and hearing in traditional Medicare. And they're all giving Bernie Sanders and I think by extension, the Medicare for All movement credit for this idea. And again, like Stephanie said, that was really not on the table just a few weeks ago. So it's all kind of due to organizing. But Stephanie, as you know, we were fighting for four different expansions of Medicare, not just the the dental vision and hearing part, although that's a major win. So what what are sort of the politics of the other three demands that we were fighting for? Should we feel confident that we've actually like won dental vision and hearing now that, you know, yeah. Schumer well, is publicly saying that they want to put it in the, the bill? We, for the first time in however long, passed a budget without the Hyde Amendment in it. Of course, the Senate still has to play ball here, but to me, this is actually a piece of Medicare for all. It's not an unrelated healthcare thing. I mean, I think that eventually we are going to pass Medicare for all in pieces. You know, even like if we pass the bill, then it's still like a transitional phase. And I think that this is absolutely, abortion is absolutely a piece of Medicare for all. And it's a really tough one. And so I'm, I'm just thrilled to see that there's actually movement on this. And then, okay, back to your question is about <laughs> dental vision and hearing. So we don't really know the details of how extensive the proposed dental vision hearing coverage will be yet. And the devil's really in the details here. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's this, this whole process has been confusing to me. Mm-hmm. But just like you said, it's sort of first they pass the top line budget. And then what the money actually goes to is worked out in the committees. And so yes, they have committed to passing to providing dental vision and hearing coverage. But what is it going to look like? Is it going to be like, Part D, where there's a huge donut hole, or is there going to be like a cap on it and and what? And I think that that's also going to be the extent to which we can really cover dental vision and hearing is also going to be the extent to which we can undercut the Medicare Advantage plans and sort of nudge the the private insurers out of the markets that they've taken from traditional Medicare. Right. And this is the reason a lot of people choose Medicare Advantage plans is because they do sometimes include these, you know, dental vision and hearing. So if you Bake that into traditional Medicare, along with other improvements to traditional public Medicare, we can start eliminating the reasons that people go for these Medicare Advantage plans, which are privatizing the system that we want to expand everywhere. And like we talked about last week, I mean, yes, Medicare Advantage plans do offer often dental and vision, but they're not even good coverage either. And so one of the things that I think is going to be great if we can add dental vision and hearing into Medicare is that Medicare Advantage is going to have to mirror all of the benefits that traditional Medicare has. That's like part of the agreement, right? They can't just like leave out whatever dental, vision, and hearing traditional Medicare is covering. And so it, in some ways, it creates like a standard that's going to be, even if a senior does choose to go on a Medicare Advantage plan, they will still at least be able to get the dental, vision, and hearing that has been, the bar has been set by traditional Medicare. Right. So. And apparently the head is part of the body as well. So all those things are, are good things to have in traditional Medicare. What about the prescription drug negotiation piece that we've been asking about? Ooh, yeah. So the other thing that's very likely to be included in the budget is some form of Medicare negotiation of prescription drugs. Again, the devil's in the details. There's a fight shaping up within the Democratic caucus in the Senate about whether Medicare will be given real power to negotiate drug prices, right? There's a lot of ways you can negotiate drug prices or rein them in. You know, one of the things that are going to be discussed is how many drugs Medicare will be able to allow to negotiate prices for and how it will set prices for those drugs, particularly whether Medicare can use what's called international reference pricing, which literally every European country uses some form of international reference pricing, even if there's like slight differences between the way that they do it. International reference pricing is the standard 
across Europe. And it is for a reason, I think. <laughs> yeah. And Ben, I think you know quite a lot, actually, about sort of the insider stuff. Can you tell us who are the players? Okay. Well, I don't know about the players, but I know the villains. So, you know, if you've been watching the news about this big, giant budget reconciliation package, which includes not just healthcare, but all sorts of stuff, probably you've been seeing the villains in the Senate as the Democratic centrists, so to speak. So that's, you know, Joe Manchin, West Virginia, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. They're the ones who like lowered that total amount from $6 trillion to $3.5 trillion and forced it, pieces of it to be bipartisan and all this nonsense. But actually, what we've heard so far is that those two and the centrist Democrats are not kind of the biggest barrier to the Medicare expansion stuff, and specifically not the biggest barrier to Medicare being able to negotiate drug prices. The biggest barriers are the senators who are closest to big pharma. And that's actually a different group of people than the centrists. The folks we most want to keep an eye on in this case are Bob Menendez in, in New Jersey, Tom Carper in Delaware and Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. So if you live in any of those states, we really, really need you to like step up your pressure on them, really push them on Medicare expansion, especially drug price negotiation. Because the more they feel the heat from their constituency, the more they'll worry about just totally kowtowing to big pharma and trying to undermine all this stuff that we're trying to include in the Medicare expansion. Yeah, I love how there are like different flavors of evil that we're uncovering in the Senate here. I mean, I think it really makes these senators a little more nuanced for me. Can we repeat those again? So there's Bob Menendez in New Jersey, mm-hmm. Harper in Delaware. That's just like the pharma belt. Mm-hmm. And then Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. So if you live in New Jersey, Delaware, or Nevada, you need to be yeah. on their ass. But in every state, be on their ass. But especially in those ones, place an emphasis on the, the drug piece of this Medicare expansion. Yeah. This is a little bit unrelated. I'm sorry I'm going off script here. But this weekend, we just had these Medicare for All marches that were everywhere. And there was one in D.C. where... Cori Bush actually showed up and she was blasted by some activists, not all of them, I don't think, but some activists who actually had the microphone at the march for not supporting Force the Vote. And today, I think uh, some of them are going to AOC's office to like demand that she do something more about Medicare for all. And I just wish that they would instead go to one of these three <laughs> pharma darlings right. offices and Maybe talk a little bit to them and put some pressure on them as well. Yeah. Throw that idea out there. You know why these senators are different from Cori Bush and AOC, though, right? They're not women of color who are all the targets of these actions, right? The progressive women of color. Literally, the squad gets called out. Specifically, guess what? The squad is just the group of progressive women of color in Congress. We don't see people standing outside of the offices of, you know, Ro Khanna or some of the other progressive male or white leaders. And this is just just utterly moronic. You, you have to target, obviously, the, the legislators who are not on board what you're fighting for to win this. Um, we are, the pathway to, the, to winning Medicare for all does not pass through like getting our most progressive leaders to somehow use only their power to like force this to happen on, on behalf of all of the Democrats sitting in, in Congress. But that is a side rant, but I, I share your ranty feelings about it. Yes, Ben, that was was (laughs) savage, but 100% true. Yeah, and we could go on about this forever. So we're not going to. I'm going to ask you the next question. So what about lowering the age of Medicare to 60? This is a really big, exciting piece, which, you know, we thought that would be the hardest provision to win. Is there, do we still have any hope for it? 
Yeah, so this is a little more inside gossips, inside scoop. This is exciting because there is hope that we can actually win lowering the age of Medicare in this budget reconciliation package. I mean, that's partly because of how the budget process works. You know, as as we've kind of alluded to, first Congress has to pick a total number, and the Senate has picked this three point five trillion dollars, and then they divide up that three point five trillion among all the different areas of spending, and healthcare is like one of those areas. And then once you have that then the healthcare committee usually decides how it gets allocated for different projects. But, you know, what we've been told by our allies in Congress, who have been kind of part of this process, we have no idea what the healthcare budget allocation is. It hasn't been published or even leaked. But the folks who are part of the process believe that it's a number that could support lowering the age of Medicare, just the money that's kind of been pledged for healthcare in that $3.5 trillion package. And so they've asked us, like the grassroots, to really, really push hard on this particular demand of expanding Medicare. So I would say, you know, to, to our listeners and our activists, like, in particular, if you are age 50 to 65, telling your story about how you'd be impacted by lowering the age of Medicare is really, really important. We've been asking folks to write really short letters to the editor or to record like a two minute video of how, you know, lowering the age of Medicare would impact you. You can also talk about how obviously getting Medicare for all would impact you similarly and advocate for Medicare for all at the same time. So your voice is really, really crucial at this time, especially when it feels like there's an opening, a window to lower the age of Medicare. I mean, we don't want to miss it. So the fourth item that we are fighting for that we haven't talked about or touched on quite yet is this idea of trying to get an out-of-pocket maximum for seniors who are on Medicare or, or people with disabilities who are on Medicare. Because it doesn't exist right now. You can have Medicare, but you can completely be bankrupted if you end up with these costs that just happen not to be covered by Medicare, especially with long-term care, which is not covered in Medicare. So Stephanie, this is the last sort of feasibility question I'll ask you. Will Congress ever, ever pass an out-of-pocket max? <laughs> for Medicare and could we possibly get it this year? Hmm. Then that's actually a trick question because Congress has already passed an out-of-pocket max for Medicare. It happened, if you can believe it, and I actually just learned this today, this is just full disclosure, in 1988 that we actually passed the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act, was definitely the most ambitious reform of the whole decade of the 80s in terms of healthcare. Instituted, it instituted an out-of-pocket cap on hospital and physician care. That's part A and part B, and also a limited drug plan. And it crashed and burned, but we're going to get back to that because I wanted to sort of, this is sort of our intro into, you know, putting the reforms that are on the table today into historical context. And, you know, between the passage of Medicare, so 65 and today, there were several waves of reform, hmm. some really good, essential, true expansions and others that like, while ex they did expand care, did it sort of ACA style through allocating public funds for private insurers to deliver care instead of expanding traditional Medicare. So a couple, you know, few steps forward, some steps back in some ways, right? So let's start with the first big and possibly, I don't know, Ben, what, what do you think about this? But I think it's Probably the most significant expansion of Medicare since 1965 was the very first after its inception. So that was in 1972, six years after Medicare took effect. What was that expansion? Well, this, I believe, was the expansion to include folks with long-term disabilities or with uh, renal disease. And it is still not perfect. I mean, I think you have to wait years, actually, to become eligible, even if you are disabled and you really badly need Medicare. But the fact that it is there was a major, major expansion at the time. So Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I've noticed, the thread that runs through all of these expansions is the things that are really expensive 
like to cover. I mean, even Medicare itself is for people who are 65 or over. And that's, you know, of course, the people who have the most frequent and intense healthcare needs typically, basically providing a safety net for what the private market will never cover. And so, you know, people with long-term disabilities and then kidney failure, those are additional things that, you know, the government sort of like picking up to support the private insurance industry, basically. And then the second wave expansion happened in 1980. So a couple things happened in this decade. Home health services were added. So that's one good step forward to giving people living with disabilities more choice and freedom. And then Medigap plans were brought under federal oversight. Hospice services were added, although again, it's inadequate right now. And then again, in 1988, that was when, as we were just talking about, we we passed a plan that would set an out-of-pocket cap on the hospital and physician care. And we had it, it was actually law for almost a year, but it was repealed <laughs> in a matter of months. And when I hear this explanation, I'm like, what were you thinking? The cost was shouldered by the beneficiaries themselves through the premiums. So they were financing it at least partially through increasing Medicare Part B premiums. And that was, you know, of course, politically unpopular and, and probably uh, very, you know, costly as well. And so that was repealed within one year. And I just want to also point out that when we talk about doing an out-of-pocket cap on Medicare, we are not talking about <laughs> just spreading it over, you know, increased premiums, you know, putting a more of a burden on people who are paying into Medicare. I think that we definitely want to finance this a different way, maybe by taxing people who are sending rockets into space right now. I yeah. Know. And I, I think that's why it's important that this round of Medicare expansion is being financed pretty progressively. In fact, the whole budget package is surprisingly being financed pretty progressively, which I think is another thing you can credit grassroots movements for. And Stephanie, as you were kind of going through this list of Medicare expansions, I had like two, two interesting thoughts going through my head. One was generally... I feel like private insurance has been shrinking pretty steadily in terms of coverage ever since, you know, the peak of post-war private insurance coverage. I mean, there's been managed care caps, they've introduced co-payments, and then they started introducing limited networks, and then they started introducing deductibles, and then they invented this new thing called co-insurance that no one even knew about 10 years ago and now is very, very common. It's like private insurance finds more and more ways to cover less and less. Whereas in general, our public insurance programs like Medicare, although it's not totally a linear line, there have been some steps backwards, especially when Medicare started introducing privatization measures. But in general, Medicare has been expanding to cover more people and more benefits as time has gone on. And I think there's a lesson in there. If you can win Medicare for all, it is very hard to attack and undermine those benefits. And you do get these windows every once in a while to dramatically expand them politically. I think that that also is mirrored by the reality and experience of other countries that have had national health services. You're not contracting their benefits. They are under pressure all the time, you know, by their citizens and by their residents to keep expanding. And that is exactly what they do. They always yeah, expand. Yeah. So that's contract, one so. one sort of takeaway I got from, from this. The other interesting one was that I was thinking about the dates, you know, like 1972 is when people with disabilities and renal disease were added. And then 1988 was this effort to introduce an out-of-pocket cap that passed and then was repealed. And then we had, you know, Medicare Part D, which we didn't really get to in the early 2000s. And Every single one of those, I believe, was passed under a Republican administration and with, you know, Republican involvement in Congress. So this was, you know, I think that was like Richard Nixon 
And then I think it was Reagan. And then I think it was Bush, right? It's so opposite from our politics of Medicare right now. It's hard to know exactly what to make of this. The Democrats played such a so little of a role in expanding our most important public entitlement program and sort of public safety net program over the years. And now it's just a complete flip. It's like a 180. And Republicans are generally being 100% obstructionist to any type of expansion to Medicare and try to shrink Medicare benefits and attack the entitlement itself. So we really are living in, in different times. But for all those decades, this was not such a, you know, left-right thing that you might might expect that it would be. Yeah. I mean, my first knee-jerk reaction to that, and not that I wanted to be an apologist for the Democrats ever, but my first thinking on that is that, you know, if Democrats tried to pass such a thing, then they would get credit, right, under a Democratic sure. administration for doing it. And Republicans never let that happen. Whereas maybe Democrats would vote with Republicans for an expansion, even if the expansion comes at a political cost or rather a scoring a political point for the other yeah, team. No, we're definitely in a time where it's like one party will block what the other party is doing, even if they believe in it, <laughs> just to like, they think it might give the other party like a leg up in the next election cycle or something. So it's truly twisted and perverse that yeah. place that we've arrived at. But <laughs> Exactly what happened with the relief checks that we should have been getting immediately last year, but because it was election year, Democrats right. didn't want to give Trump a win. Oh, so absolutely. They played the game and that's too, why for sure. healthcare now is not based in Washington, yeah. D.C. We, <laughs> we, we focus only on in-district organize, grassroots organizing because I would just lose my mind in this world. I, major credit to the serious like progressives who were able to do this in D.C. land. So. <laughs> Two more waves of reform I want to okay. get to. This next one is the 90s. So during this time, low-income seniors gained some partial relief through coverage of premiums, right? So in 88, seniors with incomes up to 100% of the federal poverty line, which is really low, were able to get coverage through Medicaid for the, the cost of their premiums, which today are $150 a month. And then in the 90s, it was gradually expanded to 100 over, over the course of a couple of years, it was gradually expanded to 135%. The biggest, I guess, and this is not, this is not a reform, <laughs> but the thing that happened in, around Medicare was Medicare Choice, which created Part C. So that was in 97. So if you remember back to 97, this was a time of like peak HMO ideology when managed care was all the rage and, you know, all policy wonks should be ashamed of themselves for this era <laughs> and what they wrought. And so it's easy to see how HMOifying Medicare seemed like a great idea at that time. And that's really what Medicare Advantage has done, created like a really restricted network and use that to save money. But, you know, and it's not an expansion of Medicare, obviously, but it's something that happened because the necessary expansions of Medicare had not happened. And that left, you know, there wasn't dental vision and hearing, which are the things that Medicare Advantage offer. And that left the door wide open for privatization in the 90s. And then again, and we see the same thing, you know, because prescription drugs haven't been covered in 2003, we had an additional expansion that's, you know, entirely private, Part D. And Part D is, of course, the optional prescription drug benefit, which is offered only by private insurers. There is no opportunity to get Part D through traditional Medicare. And then, you know, finally, that was improved when the ACA was passed over last decade, the ACA eliminated this donut hole. Should I go into the donut hole? Well, don't fall into the donut hole. <laughs> go ahead. Let's let's wrap up the history section strong. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all need to hear this. Okay. Because one day you're going to get there and you're going to be like, what is this? <laughs> 
So before the ACA, no, you're never going to get there, actually, because we're going to fix all this shit before any of us. We all have Medicare, filled right? donuts now, sort of like a jelly donut more so than the, the plain. Yeah, the but you know what? I always thought a little, when I heard eliminated the donut hall, you think there's going to be like a nice, sweet jelly frosting inside. But that's not what happened. It's more like, you know, a thin crust that you bite into. and it's 25% you know, coinsurance hold. 25 percent. Whatever that tastes like, that's what it was. So before the ACA, Part D worked like this, right? You'd pay the cost of your drugs until you hit the deductible, like all other insurance. And that's typically $450 today. And then your coverage would kick in. And then you'd have to pay 25% or so of your drug costs until you hit like another totally arbitrary number of $4,000. So, you know, this is already quite a lot of money you're paying for prescription drugs. And at that point, when you've hit $4,000, you've hit the donut hole. And that is when you'd have to pay the full 100% of your drug costs until you hit catastrophic coverage. And then when you hit catastrophic coverage, after that, you'd only have to pay, only have to pay on average 5%, although that can be still a lot depending on drugs you need. And so the ACA kind of closed this donut hole. And when I hear closed, I'm like, oh, now you pay nothing. But it just really means that that original coinsurance or whatever your original, yeah, whatever you originally would have to pay after your deductible hit, then you would just be on the hook for that. So like you'd be on the hook for 25% of your drug costs until you hit catastrophic coverage. I really hope that in the near future, someone goes back and listens to that explanation and is like, what the fuck was she talking about? This is totally irrational. I can't even imagine living under a healthcare system like that. This is when we get part M for A, the the Medicare for All expansion, finally. So yeah, as you said, it has not been a complete linear improvement of Medicare. There have been attacks on Medicare, but obviously even Part D was an expansion over zero prescription drug coverage for Medicare recipients. It was a fully privatized system because Bush created it, but that's another thing we're going to have to work on is to deprivatize Part D, which is would be included in Medicare for all. Yeah. So should we close with kind of action steps that people can take? Since it's, as we said, just a month ago, Medicare expansion was not on the table. It was not part of the Biden proposal. It wasn't coming from Democratic leadership. The grassroots have really forced this onto the table. And I think Bernie Sanders having like a really central role in crafting this budget reconciliation on the Senate side has also really helped force this onto the table. I mean, we have this kind of unique opportunity to win a few things that are literally pieces of Medicare for all. So I would say I have I have one action step I'm going to ask for. Stephanie, maybe you have a couple others. We have just launched, uh, we're working with the Be a Hero organization, which is Addie Barkan's organization, launched a big national petition with a bunch of other huge national groups calling on Congress and especially the Senate to pass all four of these Medicare expansions. As you know, these online petitions don't actually have any impact at all on members of Congress. But if you sign it, we are going to then, after we close the petition, do deliveries. So we're going to have in-person delegations to all these senators and reps, handing them the signatures of their constituents. And that actually does have a major impact on on members of Congress. So that's getting your signature on there is really important. We'll have a link to the petition in the show notes. And we're also trying to track down folks who are, you know, ages 50 and 65 in particular, like I mentioned, to take on more of a public role. Stephanie, how can those folks get involved here? Yeah. So I think in particular for those who are close to Medicare age, a letter to the editor directly asking and naming, you know, your senators and telling them that you're watching this vote and that 
you want them to fight for an expansion of Medicare of the eligibility age down to 60 or 55 or even 50, I think is the most effective thing you can do. And that's because legislators will be trolling or <laughs> will be doing searches and will be reading with, where their name pops up. And so if you name names, you know, you reference your senator by name, they will see the letter to the editor, all their constituents or many of their constituents maybe will see this letter to the editor, be informed about the issue, be informed about the ask. I think that's a great way to do some newspaper advocacy there. And then the other thing you can do is post your, do a video selfie, just hold like this, that's it. You don't have to do anything fancy, a selfie video or whatever, telling your story. It doesn't have to be, it should be actually two minutes. So figure out how to tell your personal healthcare story in two minutes and then tag your senators on Twitter and let us know and retweet it and amplify as much as possible. And just to go back to the LTE thing that I, I forgot to say that we've done a YouTube video training on how to write a letter to the editor, all the way from the beginning of selecting a newspaper, all the way to what to do when you submit. So I think that's it. Ben, do you want to talk a little bit about working with your group? <laughs> a meeting with your no, I think we'll get there. I think especially when we, maybe we'll finish the petitions first and then we'll start doing the, the delegation visits and we can talk yeah. more about that um, on the next podcast. Actions up. Yeah, no, that's that's that. fine. I mean, if you want to meet with your senator, by all means, do it. If you if you have a group of folks or a group of organizations, especially if you're one, you know, one of these crucial senators who's on you know the finance committee or one of those three pharma bros that we're a little bit worried about, pharma bros and pharma gals, I guess. So yeah, the last thing, and we'll link up the letter to the editor stuff also in the show notes. We just want to thank our podcast team who puts this all together and makes it possible. Our podcast manager is Sarah Sang. Our show notes writer is Jerry Katz. And the audio editor for this episode is Cheryl Levy. So thanks so much to those three. All right. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye.